Lonely Monk Productions. I don't know if y'all have caught Andor on Disney Plus yet, but yo. That's my joy. That's my joy. What's good, friends and family, neighbors, near and far? Welcome to an all-new episode of the Yo, That's My John podcast. The podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life, dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I am your host, Nate Runkle, a.k.a. John Varvatos, a.k.a. John Urso, a.k.a. the acting vice president of the Harriet Brindle fan club, a.k.a. Nate 3.0. Back at it again with yet another episode of the podcast. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and in good spirits. On today's episode, I am joined by Greg Seltzer of the Philly Music Fest. We have an incredible conversation about music, the fest, and the Philly music scene, and his heroic quest to turn Philadelphia into a first-class music city. You, as the kids say, will not want to miss it. But first, what's new, my friends? I apologize for the extended break. You know, we took a little vacation in Cape Cod and hit up the Exponential Music Festival. And, uh, God, something else. There was something else that happened. Man, what was it? Oh, yeah, that's right. I got freaking engaged. Yes, at the Highland Lighthouse with an incredible sunset as our backdrop. I dropped to one knee and I asked Katie for her hand in marriage. And, guys, spoiler alert. She has said yes. <laughs> yeah, so I guess we got to plan a wedding now. And um, uh, yes, before you guys ask, of course it's going to be Star Wars themed. That was always in the cards. <laughs> oh, man, it was such an incredible moment. And I want to thank everybody who has reached out to us to wish us congrats. But, you know, more importantly, thank you to the love of my life for agreeing to take this next step in sharing our life together forever and for infinite. I love you to the that's no moon and back, Crypto. But now it is time for me to get back to work. I have a lot of great guests lined up to share with you. And for you, the best way to stay on top of these updates and what's coming up is to jump on our mailing list. Visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com and sign on up to get all the news fit to read delivered directly to your mailbox. And of course, you can always find us on the socials at Yo That's My John. All right, enough of all that. After this quick break, my interview with Greg Seltzer. My guest today is on a mission to bolster and support the Philly music scene and invest in its future. Along with his wife, Jen, he has founded and curated the Philly Music Fest, a multi-day, multi-venue festival showcasing Philadelphia musicians, which has raised over $200,000 for local music education programs since its inception in 2017. This year's Philly Music Fest takes place October 10th through October 15th and features Mannequin Pussy, Low Cut Connie, Mount Joy, and many other incredible Philly acts. He is also the creator of Inside Hustle, a free networking event for emerging musicians and non-musicians aspiring to work in the Philadelphia music industry. 
Folks, it is my honor to welcome to the show, Greg Seltzer. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined today by the great Greg Seltzer. Greg, thank you for joining me today on Yo, That's My John. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So um, we we have a mutual. Um, I was uh, talking to Dan Drago. We were at, uh, at the Exponential Music Festival, and I heard I missed running into you. And uh, yeah. I was hoping to give you an in person high five for everything you do um, musically and and just for being um, an incredible individual. But um, I appreciate did you- that. I, I love this community of music podcasters that that's that's coming up in Philly. It's it's really awesome. I mean, it's such an important part of the of the scene. Um, so sorry we missed you, but great, great festival, by the way. Yeah. Um, did you have a favorite act at the show? I mean, I'm a real sucker for Jenny Lewis since uh, for, for years and years, but I thought Houndmouth was great. And I thought really Barty Strange, I thought crushed it um, on the main stage. So, yeah, those were probably my three highlights. Yeah, definitely. Bartiz, um, uh, we uh, had a small conversation, and uh, there's a slight possibility he might be coming onto the show, and I'm really excited to pick that dude's brain, too. Like, uh, just an incredible performer. Yeah, well, he's got Philly connections, right? Not only that, um, but Will Yip um, helped him with a bunch of music. Will's a producer in town. He he was on our Inside Hustle podcast, uh, Inside Hustle podcast, or Inside Hustle music event, where we, we have podcasters that come out. I think Dan came out. Um, but Will is a dynamite resource in, in Philly. So if you can get Will and Bartiz, that would be that would be an awesome talk. It would be incredible. But you're an incredible person yourself. And let's not talk about other people on your <laughs> episode. Um, tell okay. these folks a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up. Um, so I started kind of my growing up in Ben Salem. Um, and then I moved from Ben Salem to a town called Huntington Valley, um, which is Montgomery County, but it identifies with as Bucks County, basically, like the northernmost, right by the northeast Philly. Um, so I, I grew up um, locally. I uh, went to Penn State, um, graduated in 98 from Penn State. And uh, after that, I was kind of working in business. I, was, I worked as an, a CPA with a big accounting firm, kind of boring. Um, but this all kind of cycles around um, 20 years later. But I started as a CPA and then uh, went back to law school at Temple at night. And um, just married up the the accounting degree with a business law degree, and I've been doing business law. Um, never been in court day in my life. I'm not that kind of lawyer. Just helping people with business contracts and buying and selling businesses. Been doing that for at a big law firm, Ballard Spar, for uh, 20 years now. So that's been the path. And music's always been there. And I'm kind of tapping into those accounting and legal skills to formulate Philly Music Fest, but that's that's kind of the day job, if you will. Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. When you were uh, growing up, what were your parents listening to? Like, what type of music was playing around the house? So my dad, um, so we're a big sports family in addition to music. So my dad was all on the sports side. I don't think my dad would know, like, anything outside of, you know, maybe Billy Joel, um, something like that. But uh, my mom was always into music. My mom was listening to kind of VH1 when, when MTV was big, you know, you're at least me, I was, you know, into kind of the, the, the harder rock stuff. Um, and, and also some of the folk stuff with, um, Dylan and Neil Young and that stuff. But when the MTV craze, that's when I was in high school. Right. But then the parents were listening to VH1, right. So the parents were listening to the Eagles and REO Speedwagon and stuff like that on VH1. So that's what my mom was kind of tapping into, but you know what, looking back on it, it's like, 
it, it was all important because a lot of those those vibes get repurposed in modern day indie rock. Um, those synths and stuff that maybe I thought was was uh, I wasn't into when when Nirvana was going on. Um, that stuff's recycled now and and is pretty hip and cool. So that's kind of what I grew up, you know, around the house basically um, yeah. in the in the early nineties. What um what what was what was your thing? You you said a little hard rock. Uh, like uh, who were you into? Who were your guys back then? Yeah. So I, so back then, I mean, I was I was definitely like a classic rock kid. I wasn't one of these kids that had an older brother that was introducing them to like you know Slayer or something like that. Like I was very much classic rock, Led Zeppelin, um, Doors, Rolling Stones, Beatles, that sort of thing. Just very 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 middle of the road education and classic rock, but. Um, where I kind of strayed was I just gravitated towards Dylan, Neil Young, Grateful Dead were kind of like the big, the big three people for me that were a little bit outside of the mainstream. Um, now I think those are all pretty much considered mainstream, but back in the early nineties, you know, Dylan was, uh, just obsessed over Dylan, basically listened to every single record, read every single book. And he was in the early nineties before time out of mind. He was, he was not in the public. He, he was washed. He was totally washed. Right. And Neil Young was kind of washed too, before he latched on to the grunge scene and became the godfather of grunge. Um, so I kind of feel like I latched onto those guys before they kind of popped again in the mid, mid to late nineties. So, um, and the thing about me is like, I, I go deep with stuff. So, you know, now 25, 30 years later, I've gone deep on a lot of things. I've gone deep on, Warren Zevon. I've gone deep on pavement. I've gone deep on miles. Like I, I go deep on everything. But back then, my breadth wasn't as wide because I was 16, 17 years old. But when I tapped into Dylan, I literally start at CD one. You know, I rip off Columbia House on their, you know, uh, get eight CDs for 99 cents. I did that 19 times, whatever, and got as many discs as I can. Um, and then I just tap into those records. And back then, you know, pre-internet, you just had to read books. Um, and that was kind of my, my studying. And I remember I used to take notes and just go from one person to the next, basically as a portal through Dylan, essentially, like whoever was tapping into Dylan in the mid nineties through back to the 63, I was tapping into all those people, whether it was Patty Smith, um, you know, or, the Pixies or whoever was kind of covering Dylan or tapping into that, that was my portal to kind of expand. Well, what was your hook uh, on Dylan lyrics or just overall songs in general? Lyrics for sure. Um, you know, free will in, in the album in 1963 was a huge gateway for me. Um, I knew that the songs were topical, but I also, you know, was 16 years old. So I didn't know much about, you know, the, the social issues that he was singing about. I could just gather it from the music. But then when he started with kind of the imagery, um, like hard rain, um, and then up through highway 61 with, um, you know, Mr. Tambourine man from bringing it all back home and then desolation row on highway 61. It's like, then I just got really into the poetry of what was going on. So it was definitely lyrics first for me. And it's, it's interesting that that still carries. Yeah. Still carries. I mean, I know I totally respect a ton of people that are like, you know, F the lyrics, you know, it's all about, it's all about, you know, 
the, the texture, the context, you know, I could care less what they're singing about. Like I, I would love to do that. And I know that's kind of a big ethos in punk music and I've come around to that, but I'm a lyrics first. I'm even, you know, we're on drugs comes out with a new record. I'm tapping into the lyrics first, like literally reading them. Um, Alex G just came out with a new record. That is by far my favorite album of the year. Um, Granted, it only came out on Friday, but, um, but I've listened to it four times, but devoured the lyrics. So I'm a lyrics first person. And then I kind of feel like I get it. And then I put them aside. Um, it's not to like sing the tunes in the shower or something. It's just, it's just to kind of get what, what's being said, put it aside. And then I listen to the music um, after that. So that's always been my thing. Uh, it's a dope process. I like that a lot. Yeah. Like, um, did you ever write? Do you write at all? Yeah, so I, I've never written music, um, like songs. I've I've written two books. Um, you know, um, they're they're sitting over here. If you want one, I'll mail you one. No one, no one. I'd seems love to buy one. But yeah, no, they're both on Amazon. They do okay, but um, they're they basically the first one was called the 1965 Project, and the second one is called the 1968 Project. Um, very uh, cre- creativity is not my my forte, um, but. They're very descriptive. And what they are is they, they, are, they track a month in each of those years. So the 65 book starts with January of 1965. And it talks about what historically in the country was going on in that month. And then, the, then it, each chapter also lists the records, singles, and LPs that came out that month. Talks about them a little bit. And the beginning of the books are like, here's what's going on in the country. Here's the music. It's very Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Beach Boys or Surf Songs, Stones are singing just covers of blues songs, basically. And then, you know, you, you read the book, but then you get to December and it's like wars raging. Um, you know, there's racial instability. Um, you know, now all of a sudden the artists are singing about those very themes in their songs and the, the whole book kind of tracks how the historical events influenced the music that was being made in those months. And then when you take a step back and you look at it, you can see how the music started influencing the politicians and the kids and the things. So it's, it's basically like the intersection of music and history in both 65 and 68. That's incredible. So, yeah. So I, I mean, that took me, you know, that was pre Philly music fest. Um, so that took me, you know, a good five years probably to write both of those books and edit them and get them on Amazon and stuff. And I, I really feel, I really feel good about those books. Um, you know, I, people have asked me if I'm working on anything else like that. Like I'm, I switch gears. I, I pick things up and put them down, but I would love to kind of do another project. I would probably flash forward though, quite a bit. I mean, 65 and 68 are not redundant at all. The issues are similar. But and but the but the tone is way different. Like '68 is, I mean, '68 is was just a disruptive year, and the music echoes that disruption. I would probably flash it all the way forward to like 2002. Oh, like really? I want to, yeah, I would want to see like 9/11's impact on music. Um, I probably would like to dive deep on Trump's impact on the music because if you look at two, 2016, 17, there was a lot of like real good angry punk and hip hop going on, but I, I don't think I could really like tap into the, I mean, there's just such horrific stuff there that sure. I, I just don't want to like sink my teeth into the 
Trump presidency all that much. But if you really dial back and look at um, 2001 and 2002 after 9-11, super interesting because some of the music went really solemn and dark and introspective. But then some of it, like LCD Sound System, for example, they were just like, screw this. We're just going to party. And if the world ends, it ends. But we're going to go out like making sick beats and hype electronic dance music. And, and, and if there's interviews with James Murphy where he's like, that's what we were doing. We were, that was a direct reaction to 9-11. So we weren't moping around the streets. We wanted to like make some sick sick dance music so i that's something that's interesting to me but you know but it's a real labor of love i would have to i would have to get some time on my hands to set aside to do something like that it sounds dope i really hope you find that time you know the uh the the uh it's it's really weird that um to like to me when i think of 2001 i think of september 11th um the the first album that completely comes to mind is um or well two of them obviously the blueprint by jay-z because it came out on 9-11 but um but to me like just sonically i feel like yankee hotel foxtrot by wilco is like is a like a nine eleven like I it just it to me like it it just kind of uh, symbolizes that's the word I'm looking for it just kind of symbolizes that time period um, and probably because I was so obsessed with that album that that's all I was listening to but but yeah. yeah yeah for me that's a that's one of the few records I have framed around my house somewhere for sure Yankee Hotel you know I I get real nerdy about and i don't know the answer to this i should but i get real nerdy about those projects because like let's say yankee hotel came out in october of 2001 um i think the public's conscience identifies that record with post 9 11 but when i really dive into the music and i i need to see what that historical event's impact was on the creation of that music so if if tweedy and crew made that record in February of 2001, then, then yes, it comes out in the fall and it impacts people. But, you know, when he sings on Jesus, et cetera, like tall buildings shake, voices escape singing sad, sad. It's like, I want to know, wait, was that before or after? I, I think it was a coincidence that, um, that I don't think he was actually writing about that. I think it was a coincidence that it came out later. Still very interesting, but like, I was more tapping in when I was doing that analysis in 68, like sympathy for the devil, you know, Jagger Richards are writing that song after seeing just horrific, horrific images on TV, you know, race riots, you know, uprisings all over the place, the Vietnam war, women's rights um, going really, really horribly. Like, so like they formulated all of that into their lyrics and it came out at the end of the year. So I would really want to tap into like when the songs were created, you know, not to go too deep on this, but the one record that, that always sticks out for me is Beck's Sea Change. Absolutely. I think, I think that record came out, I think it came out in 2002. Um, I can't, I don't know if it was beginning or mid-year, but, um, but for me, that, that I think emulates 9-11 granted it was six nine months after but i feel like that impacted the creation of that record um and that's that's kind of that really sticks in my memory from from 9-11 but it's cool that you have the same thing about you know for me for me my first pandemic record was waxahachie saint cloud 
that came out at the beginning of pandemic. And I think I just listened to that for like a year. Um, so I'll always think about the pandemic when I listen to that record in a good way, I think. Yeah. 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 My, my, my pandemic record, um, was, uh, Mondo Cosmo new medicine. And it was because, uh, I've told this story endless times on this podcast, but guys, guess what? You're going to hear it again. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the night before lockdown, um, we, we were there at the show, the Mondo show at Ardmore. So like at midnight that night, everything was locked down. So like, it's so intrinsically tied to yeah. th- that period. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, like I'm really excited with a lot of the music that's coming out right now, because I know that this was a lot of it was created. People stuck at home, just, you know, tinkering and tinkering on, on songs and stuff like that. Um, yep. it's been really fascinating watching a lot of these, these newer releases come out. Um, so, so how did you, how did you kind of, you know, you were this obsessed with music. How, how did you end up in, in, in business and what, and, and, and accounting, uh, you know, <laughs> instead of like a, uh, a music studies or something like that? Well, yeah. Like, it's interesting. You know, I just saw something recently where um, I work with a lot of startups and read a lot of like startup press. I'm basically a lawyer for entrepreneurs and creatives. But um, Mark Cuban was going on a rant, one of his many rants, probably somewhere about how successful people, um, they, they keep their hobbies hobbies and they choose a job, a profession, not something that they're passionate about and love necessarily. This is just one person's opinion but something that they're good at, something that they're really good at. And, and it's, it would be great if music, playing music or, you know, working with musicians was something that I was really good at. But I don't know that I am or I'm not, but I chose originally skills that I thought I was good at. And I was very, very good in math. Um, so it led me to accounting. Uh, math was by far my strongest subject. And then in college um, and after college, I just started reading. I never read anything uh, in, in high school. I listened to music and I, I played ball and I did math work. You know, it's what I did. Um, so I just started reading and reading and reading. And then it kind of led me to law school. Um, you know, and I, people ask me, why did you go to law school after, you know, try being an accountant, no offense to accountants, but if you're an accountant for a couple of years, you're probably, most people try to find something else to do. Um, so I knew I needed to get into business and law was a portal to do that. Um, and then after a while, just kind of combining, you know, starting at the law firm, I, I kind of really, really enjoyed helping businesses, helping startups and met, you know, kind of meshing the accounting with the law degree. And I just, I got really, frankly, good at being a business lawyer and I really liked being good at something. So music was always in the background, but I never really... I wasn't really going to be an entertainment lawyer in Philly. And I basically just had this kind of separation of church and state with my work and doing well at, at, a, at a law firm and helping people and, you know, making some coin that helped me, you know, go see shows and, you know, be, be able to kind of buy the records that I wanted to. So they, they seemed to coexist for a little while. Um, but then flash forward to, I guess, probably about 10 years into my legal career. And I, you know, long story short, I got matched up with Jay Sweet. Um, Jay Sweet is the executive producer of the Newport Folk Festival. Um, also does pilgrimage and does a whole host of other things. He's he's incredibly talented. 
um, producer and he curates that whole festival. He basically brought Newport folk back from um, the depths of corporate, you know, it was the Dunkin' Donuts Newport Festival before Jay Sweet came in and took it over. So I got meshed up with him and, you know, he basically said like, you're in like the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. You understand music, you understand law, you understand finance. I need your help. So I started working with him on a bunch of different projects um, of, of his own when he was producing different things and negotiating his contracts with Newport Folk and things like that. And it really kind of opened my eyes to, you know, I, I couldn't actually use my skills to help people in the music industry. I never had, not for a second, did I have the thought of opening a venue or representing bands for a fee or, and I just, my mind didn't go that way. I had my day job and then this was like, oh, how can I use these day job skills to help musicians and the whole music ecosystem. So I kind of tapped into that. And um, it was right at the time that a lot of bands were breaking out in Philly. Um, Dr. Dog, um, the Roots had already kind of busted out, but it was, you know, War on Drugs, Kurt Vile, Waxahachie was breaking out, Strand of Oaks, bands like that. And I, I kind of just went through a couple years of trying to push these bands onto Jay to appear at Newport. Some of them did, Loka Connie, Strand of Oaks, Kurt Vile, Dr. Dog. They all miraculously appeared at Newport, um, Waxahachie. Um, but I kind of said to myself, wow, I need to, we need to hone this, this scene a little bit more. And then I started from there talking with as many people as I could in the scene, everyone from talent bookers like Marley, and Barrett over at Johnny Brenda's, the folks at World Cafe, um, you know, the guys at R5, Connor Barwin, just like kind of trying to triangulate the XPN folks. Like, what, what, what's going on in this music scene? And I kind of, as a business person, took a step back and I was like, this is a very fractured, it's a very fractured environment. It's, it's fractured. Um, and I have a white paper that I, that I typed up as well for myself just to kind of put some thoughts down on what I thought needed some help from a nonprofit perspective. It was incredibly provincial from a geographic perspective, like the West Philly, like the man, man, West Philly scene doesn't really hang with the South Philly, you know, scene and, and very provincial in neighbor neighborhoods, which is very Philly. But if we all working together, we should break down, break that down a little bit. And then it was also very provincial by genre. You know, the punk scene didn't hang out with the jazz scene and they didn't hang out with the rock scene. And, you know, everyone's kind of judging everyone. And look, I, I don't know if I'm the person to change it, but what I've tried to do with Philly Music Fest and starting it is from that little white paper and that analysis was like, if you can attack this from a nonprofit perspective, you can get a lot of credibility that you're not in it for the money. And it's really important in the music scene, I found, to really establish and, you know, put your 990 out there for the world to see that we're not taking payroll. We don't even have a payroll. This is not a money-making operation. And once you establish that, you can then try to enact some good in the music ecosystem. So that's, that's really the synthesis of, of, of what I saw, was identifying some problems, identifying that we can do this nonprofit and try to bring voices together 
um, and get some credibility. And then from there, try to just break down um, geographic barriers, break down genre barriers. Um, and then, you know, I came up with kind of the three missions of the festival and uh, we were off and, off and running. So it's, it's a bit cir- circuitous and long-winded, but that's kind of that's the best I can do to triangulate how Philly Music Fest came to be. It's incredible, you know, and it, and it's and it's it been successful in in accomplishing that because um, you guys started 2017, right? And mm-hmm. um, and like I, I, you can start to see those walls starting to come down. Like now, you know, you see shows with you know um, people from from different genres. Kind of, it's one of the things I really like about the Philly Music Fest. I like the the tagline that our genre is Philly because mm-hmm. you know you've you've helped foster a community that is now supporting each other and kind of boosting each other. And everybody is in everybody else's corner and, you know, uh, you know, not just you, but also the, I think the pandemic was a huge part of it too, was like when we started to realize, you know, when we started to see venues closing and we started to see people unable to kind of live essentially um you know it's where my love of this area um grew exponentially uh no pun intended um was how the community rallied around each other and 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 propped everybody up um but a huge part of that is is you bringing you know these kind of artists together on a stage um what was that what was that first year like what was what what was the lineup kind of like there oh man um first year so um Strand of Oaks, who's the sweetest human being, Tim Showalter, that I think I might ever have met in life generally, not just the music scene, but um, he he is the only one probably that would have been like, yeah, I'll do it. You know, like he would he had been breaking out. He had Heal was a breakout record. Um, then Hard Hard Love came out. Um, so he he could have played Union Transfer. There was no filmware at that point, but he could have easily played Union Transfer. But he was the perfect person to say, oh, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, I had a little bit of credibility from some from Jay Sweet and some other people that I knew in the music scene, but not really leveraging that, just saying, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, this is V1. This is a beta. I, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'll get you paid. Um, we pay everyone really well. Um, all musicians get paid really well, probably more than at other at other venues and shows. And, and he said, I'm in. So then I just, from there, kind of booked out a lineup. Um, one of my favorite Philly bands that's not around anymore headlined night one, which is Cayetana. Um, so Cayetana headlined night number one. Um, Strand of Oaks was night number two. And we filled it in with some, some whoever we could get, frankly, to get to play this kind of unknown thing. Ceramic Animal, it's a band that kind of has blown up and um, open for the Black Keys. They were like, you know, very early um, support. You know, they played probably at like 6 p.m. or something like that. Um, 16 Jackies were a band that played year one. They played at noon at World Cafe Live. There was not a lot of people there. Um, so, you know, I learned, I learned kind of, I tweaked the model a bit, but that first year was interesting. It was one venue. Uh, it was just at World Cafe Live. They were the venue that kind of took a shot on this. Um, deeply in- indebted to them for doing that and understanding the mission. Um, but that, that, that first year was tough. I mean, I will tell you, you know, just echoing kind of the, the vibe that Philly had in 2017, this is an example and I don't mean to pick on someone, but you know, 
they, they picked on us. So we're picking on them. Right. I mean, so 2017, we come out with this idea. We're going to have this nonprofit. It's going to benefit music education. We're going to prop up artists. We're going to be cross genre. You know, basically the whole mission was baked from year one and Philly mag came out with an article that um, notwithstanding that, you know, I am a lawyer and can look like a lawyer in a suit and whatever, you know, we had another picture for the, the music festival person of me, which is something that's a little dressed down, but um, Philly mag comes out with this article that says something to the effect of, you know, can, can a corporate lawyer really put on a, a music festival or something of that sort. And they, they took my, they didn't take the press photo. They took my picture from the, the law firm website. Um, it's probably the last time I was ever wearing a suit and tie. And, <laughs> and they put that on there. And, and it was just like a really negative kind of article before the festival even happened. Right. Um, and I just think that that, you know, it was, it's so indicative of Philly music scene, 2017. And now, and I don't think this is a result of Philly music fest at all, but now the scene is aggregated a bit. Those barriers have been broken down a lot. And now when someone comes out with a new concept, the initial reaction is typically to rally around it with support. Um, you know, new venues pop up, you know, um, Marley's opening this new concourse live. Like it's in the, it's, it's in the basement in the bowels of suburban station. Right. It's, it's typically something that most Philly people would be like, I'm not definitely not going there. Right. But now the vibe is actually that place is cool. Like the place is going to be really cool. Actually, I'll go check that out. I'll see who's playing there. Like it's just a more, optimistic positive scene um and and i think philly music club is like right on the cusp of that where you know we had a we had to really gain credibility from people um and i think we've done that um without corporate banners without a whole bunch of bullshit at our festivals i think we've gained that credibility but i do think back to 2017 to answer your question and like yeah there was skepticism um there was unfounded skepticism to be honest, um, from the jump. So that's what I remember about 2017. That's wild. Yeah. I mean like, and, but even with that skepticism, you still raised what 70 or, um, sorry, 15,000, uh, yep. that first year outright. And now you've grown to 75. Um, you look, you got a goal of a hundred for this year. How are you feeling on that goal? You think you're, we're, we're going to hit that. I mean, we already have four of the shows sold out. Um, so I have a pretty, detailed spreadsheet model. Um, and you know, so long as we sell a little bit of merch and get these other shows sold, um, we should be very good on track to donate a hundred grand. So, um, so I, it's great. I mean, and you know, year one was 15 grand and like, that seemed like a lot. We gave, we gave, um, five organizations, $3,000 each in 2017 and, um, music education organizations. And they were, like over the moon. I mean, they were so appreciative of $3,000. Now we can give, now we give, you know, more proper kind of 10, 12, $15,000 to these organizations. It's worked into their budget. It buys kids instruments. It, it funds after school classes for um, real musicians to come in. Like it's, it's real money for these budgets. So um, I'm super proud that we, we, we grew it. And, and when I take a look at, at, at our impact, when I talk to, some folks like, what's your impact, you know, in the nonprofit scene? I'm like, we donated $100,000. Like, isn't that the answer? No, that's not the answer. The impact is $100,000, but we, we paid musicians probably two to $300,000 in that year. 
and the venues are making a bunch of money and, you know, radios making some good money the whole ecosystem is kind of rallying around it. So when you add all that up, plus the hundred thousand, I mean, it's, it's a bigger, it's a bigger footprint than just writing some checks to charities at the end of the festival. Yeah, 100%, man. And like the 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 things you've accomplished and the and and the mission you guys have set out on is absolutely incredible. You know, um the the gutting of music programs is one of the the saddest things to me in the world. Um mostly because I know especially in a city like Philadelphia that a lot of kids don't have access to, you know, to even learn that they're musically inclined, you know, or even learn that they love music. Like it takes that kind of, um, it takes that kind of village, you know, and to be able to give and, and fund and finance those kind of, um, endeavors, it's, it's so incredibly admirable. Um, and I'm so glad that you guys have kind of championed that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's a super interesting point by you. I mean, music education has changed tremendously, right? It used to be, you know, back when I was in high school, it's like, you know, they had to have enough money to buy some saxophones, some flutes and like a drum kit, you know, and then there was a piano or whatever. But now with with hip hop and, you know, synthesized music, you need like you need real equipment to to help these kids. They don't want to like play the flute. Right. They, they, they want to get in there and like make beats on a computer, synthesize them together, maybe put some bass riffs over it or something like that. Like. It, it costs more money now to educate kids based on the type of music that they want to make. So these programs are super, super important um, to kids. And, you know, it's not just playing music. It, it, it keeps them out of trouble, keeps them engaged. Maybe their brains are not, you know, English, math, science, maybe they're more creative. And when you gut these high school curriculums of, of music education, it's, it, it's, I think it's really damaging. So these, these programs are super important um, and we hope that these kids will be on the Philly music fest stage in in, you know, six, seven, eight years. I mean, that, that, that's the goal. Oh, I, I, I have no doubt that they will. And, and they will definitely pay it back and pay it forward. Um, so, you know, you've got uh, an incredible lineup of artists this year, Mannequin Pussy, Mount Joy. How crazy has it been for you to watch Low Cut Connie um, just explode? Like Adam and the guy, like, I cannot believe, yeah. like, what happened? I don't. <laughs> I mean, it's. I think it's, I think if I had to really put my finger on it, it's talent and energy. He's really, really talented as a performer. He's probably one of the most talented performers I've ever seen, right? His live shows are incredible. Um, the music he writes is great. You know, it's blues rock, um, retro roots, blues rock, but he's got, he sneaks in some, some ballads here and there. Um, you know, he, he's, he's got a song, look at what they did, um, which is about like Atlantic city and, um, you know, how, capitalism kind of came in and took over Atlantic city and made it great for a second. And then, it, and then it's kind of deteriorated again. He, he really, he's really a talented songwriter and performer. Um, but I also think his energy is just off the charts with the tough cookies, um, you know, series that was covered by the New Yorker. And I, I mean, he's just, he just does everything a hundred percent. And, and, you know, we've had, I think we've had around 120 bands at, Philly Music Fest over six years, um, we've only repeated four or five bands. Um, and most of those bands were the 16 Jackies and Ceramic Animal that we had when they were like little, little babies. And then they 
got great, you know, they're, they're, they're ready to headline. So we brought them back as kind of a headliner basically, but we probably only repeated four, four or five, maybe Ivy soul um, is a, is a, is a rapper that was very undercard support and she came back and headlined a show. So, but Loka Connie is in that, that group we had in year two, Loka Connie was, you know, smaller font on the poster, if you will. Um, and, and now they're coming back as the overall World Cafe Live downstairs headliner. And I'm just super excited. Um, just a short, quick plug for that show. Um, going to be an r- unbelievable set. Um, he's really going to bring it even more. Usually a festival set like this, he, I'd probably give him an hour and 20 minutes or an hour and a half. This is a full um, two hour. This is a full 120 minute set. And that's because there are some really, really compelling guests that are going to come out and sing some classic Philly songs um, with him. He's going to, there's probably four or five guests that are coming out all throughout his set. Um, so it's going to be super, super cool and super interesting. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm really hoping to be able to make it to that show. Like, uh, like, I, I'm just, I'm in awe of, of the, the growth, like, um, and, and like you mentioned tough cookies, like, I, I feel like it was the perfect way to showcase his talent on a, on a way that like, you know, met people in their homes. So like they weren't, it wasn't like going to a festival or going to see them open for somebody or something like that. Like, you know, they, you, you welcomed them into their, into your home and then they solidly entertained you weekend and week out and it was just a it was a really beautiful thing like a really special thing it was and i thought it was so interesting for him because he's got this persona that when you go to a show and you leave you know maybe you're driving home at after the show and you're like you think he's really like that you think he's really like that and then and then all of a sudden the pandemic and then you get in his house and he's there with will it's like he's really like that he's really like that you know like so it, it was just so cool to like have that justification for that glimpse for him because he's the one that we kind of were questioning. I want I was wonder what he is like at home. And then we, and then all of a sudden you see him at home. It was, it was really cool. But um, yeah, so we're super, super psyched to have him back. That whole show is cool with Ron Gallo. Um, Kaylee Goldsworthy is, is great. Um, and then like you're saying before, I mean, we mash it up. So we'll have, I mean, our headliners are punk, hip hop, um, rock, Mount Joy's blowing up. Um, screaming female show, which already sold out at Johnny Brenda's. Um, so I'm super excited for this year. I think it's incredibly diverse and I love that people are hanging, hanging with us on the, on the curation. Um, you know, cause we have jazz opening that show, that low cut Connie show. I mean, we have perpetual motion, which is, you know, a, an amazing jazz outfit that's just stacked with, you know, Ron Gallo, which is kind of indie rock and and low cut so it's it's just all mashed up and i think people are people are getting it people are getting it now so it's cool it's like the one year we had sunra opening for man man i thought that was i thought that was like people were gonna be like i'm done with this philly music festival what the (laughs) what is this why is sunra but they went together they went together perfectly i mean avant-garde avant-garde jazz meets avant-garde indie rock and it was a it was a match made in heaven and people people got it so um, I, I I love that about it. It's awesome. the The other thing you're doing uh, in conduct in conjunction, uh, the inside hustle. How how did how did that come about? Like, what? I guess kind of just walk me through as as quick yeah. as you can. Like, yeah. So so do you play? Do you play an instrument? I do. I play guitar. 
Okay. So I kind of play guitar, but not, not really. Um, but Inside Hustle is, is kind of a vision where I feel like in the first four or five years of Philly Music Fest, we tapped into this fact that we have a bunch of musicians. The city is amazing musicians in all genres. They're all breaking out. They don't need Philly Music Fest, but what we do is we try to put, shine a little spotlight on it. We get an article in Billboard. Uh, we get an article in Forbes. We get an article in Brooklyn Vegan, and it's like awesome. We got in Star this year. I don't do that for the for the credibility um, of of the festival or or you know promotion. I get that. I push for those so those national publications take a look at our scene and say, "Wow, Philly, Philly is a viable music ecosystem, not just a couple bands here and there." So Inside Hustle quickly is just it, it's this ecosystem building concept that we have musicians, but in order to have a really viable first class, not second class, first class with Nashville, Austin, Chicago, New York, LA, Seattle, we need to be in that first class of music ecosystems. And to do it, I feel like a lot of people think you need just artists and just bands. And, and I don't think that's the right recipe. I think in order to do it, you need managers, you need agents, you need PR people, you need media, radio, podcast, um, you need some lawyers, you need some accountants, you need streaming services, um, you need all record labels, studio engineers, you need this whole ecosystem. So what I'm trying to do is we have a lot of those, the Will Yips and the Jeff Zieglers, and we have some labels um, and we have some great managers, don't have a lot of agents, booking agents and talent agents, but um, what I'm trying to do is bring all of those voices together and that's what Inside Hustle is. It's basically an expo style networking event, always during the week of Philly Music Fest, the, the Saturday of Philly Music Fest, the last day of it. Um, and it's basically just come on out. And if you're not, if you can't play guitar, if you don't, if you're not a musician, but you want to be in the music scene, come out. There's a home for you somewhere, whether it's at a venue or booking agent or manager or whatever. Let's see what your skills are. Come talk to people. Um, get in there and be an engineer and, and learn it, right? So that's what Inside Hustle is. It's trying to like build the ecosystem outside of the musicians, but everything is always to support the musicians. But in order to keep them here and get new ones, we need to kind of have all of those other disciplines. So that's, that's what Inside Hustle is. It's a free event on October 15th from noon to three at World Cafe Live. So we got 350 people RSVP'd for that right now. So it's 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 working um it's it's free just come out and learn and network really i uh i am one of them i uh i already have i already have my uh rsvp sent in yeah i'm really excited for it um and, and you know you, you touched on something there you know the idea of philly being a first class music city like i i feel like we are right there like we are a, we are just about to blow and um and and these kind of things are are so necessary especially so that people don't get you know uh manipulated and lost uh mm -hmm. in the shuffle when it does blow because you know that that's when the vultures come <laughs> for sure yeah we need to support and protect and and that's why you know we have that's why legal and accounting you know year one of inside hustle it was just artists and some managers and some production. And I did a, did a little poll on Instagram and said, and Twitter I was like, what else do you all need? And I was like, besieged with, we need legal and accounting help. And I'm like, really? 
Like that's, that's what everyone is literally like eight out of 10 answers where we need to know if we should have an entity set up for our band. And what do we do when we buy an amp? Do we keep the receipt? Is Do we write that off? And I'm like, oh, these people, these folks do need some help. Uh, this is really easy stuff to get. These are easy answers. These are layups, right? So now we bring in that skill and, and we're just trying to help, you know, leave no one behind. We're trying to help everyone and, and get, give them ac- everyone access to information. So, so that's what Inside Hustle is. I, I, I really hope it continues to grow and I hope people get some value out of it. Definitely. So um, being as in tuned um, into the uh, scene as you are and, and with the Philly Music Festival, who do you think's next? Who, who do you think uh, who do you think's on deck to, to blow? Because um, so, you've seen a bunch of them come through. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just hard to know who we think is already blowing up. But like for me, Alex G. Um, Alex G. headlined um, last year. Uh, he was one of our headliners last year. And um, I've been a huge fan for a long time. He just had a record come out, as I said, at the top of the, the pod. Um, I think it's incredible. I think he, he's someone that's going to go from playing Union Transfer to the Met um, in, in no time. Um, I think he's poised to kind of break out nationally and be playing bigger venues, headlining festivals next summer. So um, if, if we don't consider Alex to have already broken out, um, I would definitely say he's on he's on kind of that Kurt Vile, Dr. Dog, we on drugs path. He's kind of going to be the next person. I think he's 29. Um, yeah. I mean, that's probably who I would go to right now. That's just front of mind. Yeah, sure. Definitely. I love it. Um, that, that, uh, what I've heard from the album, I haven't heard the whole thing yet, but I've heard three or four tracks off of it. It's absolutely phenomenal. Like I'm, yeah. I'm really, really stoked, uh, to see what, what he's got, uh, in store for the kind of the rest of his career, because he definitely has a voice, um, that I love to hear and I love to see. And, and I love that he, he tries to push you away. I think I, I never talked to him about, but I feel like when you listen to his track and he'll put out a single, I think you put out a song called Blessing, which is probably the hardest track to listen to on the record. A lot of auto-tune, a lot of voice manipulation. And I almost think it's it's meant to kind of push the push the per, the casual person away. And maybe that person never gets to to hear the gems in there. But if you really kind of you really kind of be patient and dig with it a little, I mean, there are some incredible gems in that record that are kind of Min, you know, mixed amongst the auto tune and synths and voice manipulation, which are cool, but then there's just some unbelievable, you know, almost similar to kind of how, how, um, you know, heavy metal drummer kind of has that distortion and kind of leads into things, and and it it reminds me of that a bit, actually. Definitely, definitely. Well, yeah. at this time, uh, you want to yeah. enter the jauntlet and uh, do some of these questionnaires here. Uh, these are the these are the questions I ask everyone. The first section is the one hit wonders. Just for clarity, these are just uh, I'm not calling these people one hit wonders. Obviously, it's just the uh, you're picking one or the other. I don't know how many times I've had to like I've, yeah. I've pitched this and people have gone, "Well, Billy Joel's not a one hit wonder," and I'm like, "Okay, yeah, that's I get it." Um, but uh, yeah. first one, Billy Joel or Elton John? Elton John for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number two, Debbie Harry or Joan Jett? Joan Jett, for sure. You got to stay local. You got to stay local. Yeah. Um, number three, Aretha Franklin or Tina Turner? Um, 
I would say Aretha. I, I, I'm a kid of like the 80s and 90s. I, I came to Tina at like probably a weird place, like Pepsi commercial situation. So I, I probably would just go with Aretha. Okay. Sounds good. I love it. Uh, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Oh, Nirvana for sure. Yeah. Were, were you always, were you always a Nirvana guy even back in the, uh, um, it's not so much. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, that was the, if you weren't listening to Nevermind when I was in, I mean, that was, yeah, I was always in a Nirvana, but and I, sh- I should probably keep this positive, but it, I'm probably more Nirvana because I, I don't, I'm not really a Pearl Jam guy, to be honest. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's more of a, it's, it's more of medium high on Nirvana and medium low on Pearl Jam. So, okay. No, that tracks. That tracks. Sorry. Sorry, people. I know they just played here and it was very popular. But. It's forgivable. It's forgivable. Yeah. Uh, next one, uh, Janis Joplin or Stevie Nicks? Uh, Janis, for sure. Definitely. Uh, yeah. The big one, Beatles or the Stones? This one's so hard. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably Beatles. Um, you know, I just, it was so foundational in, in, in my growing up and, both of those bands feature very, very prominently in those two books I was mentioning earlier. So I've done deep research on both of them. Um, I just think the Beatles were incredibly creative. Those riffs are incredible. And um, I'm a huge George Harrison solo career fan. Um, so I, I probably would just lean um, ever so slightly Beatles. But I'm, I mean, Stones are a top five band for me. So it's not, this is this is mincing a... Uh, this is mincing at the top. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, uh, uh, being uh, in into that time period as much as you are, um, I'm going to ask you one of the questions. I've only asked uh, two or three guests on this. Um, uh, uh, the um, uh, Wild Horses, um, there's the conspiracy, and we'll see mm-hmm. uh, where you lay your hat. Uh, do you think Graham Parsons wrote Wild Horses? You know, I think he wrote parts of it. Um, you know, I, I really do. I mean, he was, he was very in and around Keith at the time, um, more so than Mick, um, which I think cuts in favor of him probably not writing the whole song and, you know, that whole conspiracy. But, um, and, and when I've gotten into how the Stone songs come about, they very much come about through Keith writing a melody or a riff, giving it to Mick, and he generally writes lyrics to the song. So I, I kind of feel like in my vision of what happened i know there's there's probably 10 different stories but my vision of it which is just probably number 11 is keith wrote the the chords um probably graham parsons was in and around probably uttered some lines or lyrics and then it got turned over to mick and he he made it what it is so that's just one person's analysis I respect it. I respect yeah. it. I um, yeah. My my answer to um, whenever anybody asks what what they think the best cover song of all time is, I always say it's the Flying Burrito Brothers version of Wild Horses or the Rolling Stones version of Wild Horses, oh, okay. depending on who you. <laughs> okay. So there's your there. That's where you. Uh, by the way, he he prominently featured on one of my really my intro to country music was Sweetheart of the Radio, the bird the birds record, which. I write about a lot in that book too. Graham Parsons is basically in the birds for that, for that one record only. Um, but he, he was just a magician. So if you're going to, if you're going to lay your hat with grandma, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight you on that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, the last one hit wonder, Bohemian Rhapsody or Stairway to Heaven? Um, I'm proud. I'm probably a Stairway to Heaven person. I just take the rock 
I'll take that guitar solo. Yeah. Uh, over the, uh, I'm not a huge art rock kind of glam guy. I love Queen, love the Bowie stuff, but um, yeah, I'll probably just stick with Stairway on that. I can dig it. I can dig it. All right. The, the last section is the top 10 countdown. Um, as always, and as I'm sure you know, John can be whatever you want it to be. Uh, it doesn't have to be music. You can make it whatever you want. But uh, number one, what was your first John? What was the first thing you were obsessed with when you were younger? Um, it was probably probably the Eagles, Philadelphia Eagles. Um, oh, yeah. Probably. I mean, we, we, we date back. My grandfather had season tickets in 1960. Um, and I started going, I was eight years old, um, at the top of the vet, um, you know, in, in 1984 and, uh, now I'm bringing my kids to the game and my, my grand, my grandfather passed, my father's still going and it, it's a big family thing. So that, that was the first thing I ever remember just being absolutely obsessed with. I love it. How you, how you feel this year? I'm feeling pretty good right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm nervous cause everyone's feeling so good. I mean, yeah. I'm just, Right. Like born and bred Philadelphia and like everyone's feeling good. And now all of a sudden I'm kind of zagging and feeling like it can't be as good as that. Um, but they look really strong on, on every position. So it should be fun. Yeah. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Uh, number two, what's your current John? What are you into right now? <sighs> into right now? I'm still with the Eagles. I mean, honestly, what am I into right now? I'm just obsessed over executing on this <laughs> music festival. Um, you know, I work my tail off during the day. Um, I don't exactly have a nine to five job, so it, it bleeds. It's pretty, it's pretty constant, but, um, but at night and weekends, I am just focused on executing at every single level of this festival from the green room to the bands, to every fan having a great time and, and then raising money. So that, that's pretty much what I'm eat, sleep and drink right now. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, number three, what was your first concert? What was the first live show you saw? A hundred percent. I went with my mom. I told you the VH1 person. Uh, we went to see Neil Diamond at the Spectrum, um, and it was pretty epic. Um, it was. It was pretty. I just remember it being a show, um, and my mom was really interested in it. And uh, yeah, I, was, I don't. I don't listen to any Neil Diamond now, but I went to Neil Diamond at the Spectrum, and it is what it is. Um, as a, as a lyric guy, if you go back and you, you grab those two albums that, um, he did with, uh, Rick Rubin, they are absolutely like, you can, you can, you start to see like, Oh, this is why later in his career or yeah. Um, it was after, it was after Rubin did like the, the cash stuff, his, yeah, his, his next project was, uh, working with Neil Diamond. And, uh, I think they did, I know they definitely did one. I'm pretty sure they did two albums together. Um, really good I'm gonna, stuff. I'm going to go check that out. A little Neil Diamond tip. I like that. Yeah. You'll, you'll see it, but you'll, you'll see exactly. It's, it's essentially like him and a guitar for the most part, some piano, you know, very, very yeah. Rick Rubin stripped down. So, I mean, he was a Tim Pan Alley, you know, so, so amazing songwriter before he became a showman. And then, you know, I got really into Dylan, obviously, and then got into the band. And then, you know, you watch The Last Waltz. And if there's like one person that people are like, whoa, whoa, I don't get this. And it's like Neil Diamond and, and you know, the band know what they're talking about. So um, he gets some cred in The Last Waltz and he's good with me. That that film is so incredible. I love it <laughs> yeah. so much. Yeah. Uh, number uh, four, what was the last concert you went to? Um, I went to Mount Joy a couple of weeks ago at the man. Um, we announced Mount Joy playing Philly music fest this year. 
at that show at the man. So I went there to hang out there and, um, you know, we're a husband and wife operation. So I was handing out flyers in the parking lot, um, for trying to get people to support Philly music fest. So, um, that was, that was definitely the last show I was at. Uh, that's awesome. Um, what, do you have a, do you have this, this is, oh, a you know what? Si- I, I, I got to correct that answer. Cause I was at exponential. So, oh, right. um, I don't know. Yeah. That was the last show. And then exponential was the festival, but who knows? Yeah, no, I t- totally forgot it myself even. And yeah. we literally just talked about it. Um, yeah. do you, do you have a favorite venue in the area? This is kind of a side question here, but, um, I have in the area, I, I love Johnny Brenda's and I love Union Transfer. I think they're both really, really solid venues. Um, just in general, uh, some of my favorite venues are the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. I go down there as much as I can. Um, I love big shows at MSG. Um, MSG is a great place to see a show if you're going to see a show at a big venue. Um, but yeah, locally, Johnny Brenda's, you can't beat it. And um, and I think UT's, I think UT always sounds great to me. Excellent. Excellent. Um, number five, what was your favorite concert? Best live show you ever saw? Oh man. Um, I, off the top of my head, I would say Radiohead at the tower, um, on kind of, I think it was the in rainbows era. Um, they were just playing everything. They were playing their whole back catalog. Um, that was a, that was a great show. Um, and then I would say like sets wise, I saw some great sets at Newport Folk. I've been going 14 years in a row this past year. So, you know, I saw My Morning Jacket was the backing band for Roger Waters. Um, you know, I'm a huge Gillian Welch fan. So I saw Gil and Dave do a, a, a basically a Dylan tribute set with with guests. And that was incredible. So I would say that, that Radiohead show comes to mind. But when I think of like musical moments, um, Newport, Newport probably ranks like eight out of 10, you know, Boney Vare just coming up and playing a song or John Roger Waters flew in from Wisconsin to do one song with John Prine before he passed. Um, just, just some amazing stuff at Newport. Were you, were you there? Um, d- did you get to see the, um, the, uh, Joni, Joni. research? Yeah. Yep. Saw the Joni thing. And, um, and it, it gets overshadowed because the Joni thing was so incredible, but, the night prior, um, Nathaniel Rateliff did a whole tribute to Paul Simon and Paul Simon came out um, and, you know, Joni, Joni's doing the best she can, but Paul Simon just rolls out and like plays Graceland. Like it's, you know, like it's 1989 or something. It was incredible. Like he was, he was really, and I'm not like the hugest Paul Simon fan, but like he came out and it was, that was really cool this year. But, uh, but yeah, the Joni thing was super, super cool. That's awesome. Uh, number six, who have you never seen live that you wish you would have? They can be living or dead. Um, hmm. I, I would say, um, of course, I'm not going to give you a straight answer, but I've seen the Grateful Dead many times. But if I think about the Grateful Dead, um, if I could have seen the Grateful Dead in 1969 slash 1970, I wouldn't go all the way back. But that era of Grateful Dead, to me, it just it just bolts off the, off the page. It just, it, it just sounds incredible. If I could see any band, I would probably see that band, which I saw at the very tail end. And it was a little bit sad. I would see them in that, that band in that particular era. 
I like it. Yeah, the um, for me, like any live recording when when they were when they were making music with um Donna and Keith, um, yep. like that's just you know, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that is so good. I mean, and there's so many errors of that band, but I, I would probably drill down. I'd probably drill down on that. Um, you know, a second would be maybe Rolling Thunder review if I could see that Dylan Rolling Thunder review, and I probably would 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 sell everything to go. Uh, go just see one show with the face painted white and the you know the the straw hat that would, that would be it for me i love it i love it uh number seven name an unappreciated john something you wish had more shine to it um that's a that's a really good question and unappreciated john so it's not just music it's every, i'm going to stick with music though um a, a a deep cut for me um is magnolia electric company and jason molina um, he passed away, uh, tough, tough story. But I mean, for people that are listening that are into kind of the, the Dylan, the Neil, the dead sort of thing, Magnolia Electric Company, it's basically Jason Molina. Um, go check, go check him out. He's one of my favorites. Oh, it sounds incredible. I'm going to have to check that out after we yeah. finish this. Um, number eight, favorite album. Favorite album. Um, it's it's gonna have to be dylan um it, it it's really hard to to pick them but you know free and is probably not his best album and it's not the album i go back to most but it was just so incredibly meaningful to me in you know late 90s it just got me through a lot of stuff and i know it like the back of my hand and i just kind of it's just like serenity for me if i had to grab one record i'd probably just grab that one acknowledging footnoting not the best record it's just one that i would like to have on me at all times i hear you my um my my, my dylan go-to is um hyper specific but it's the um new york session recordings of blood on the tracks okay. are just are just uh and i and i know that's like um like such a hipster type answer to just say no. well not the actual version but yeah but but those recordings they just they they sonically just kind of soothe me like i love that love yeah. that album like i i've never I've never interacted with the war on drugs and Adam, but um, he's, they're doing a Dylan cover on their tour this year. Um, They're doing, uh, they're doing a cover of Dylan's born in time, which, which is a, is a track off of um, Oh Mercy, which was like a a Lanois album he did with Lanois in 89, which is a really nice, a really good album, but they're so nerd. They're such nerds like me with Dylan that, there was a um, an alternate version to your point that came of Born in Time that came out on a bootleg series that was an outtake of the Oh Mercy sessions and We're on Drugs covers the outtake version like very clearly covers the outtake version and not the album version um, which I just think is so it's so deep track nerdy um, and hipster that uh, I just I love that um, yeah just, I was yeah. I respect the hell out of that. Like that's that's yeah. exactly right, right, right in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, I think I know the answer to this one, but number eight, name an artist whose output you'll consume anything they release. Well, I mean, it's Dylan, but it's hard. I would say, um, for me, like listen immediately is Gillian Welch. Um, Gill is, I mean, she's she's, you know, she's in my top whatever. Um, I see her whenever I can. It's very hard to see them. Gil and Dave, they're not around a lot, but I think she is 
incredible. She comes out with a new album and I, I schedule that Friday to listen to that record and probably listen and listen and listen. So her whole catalog, Soul Journeys, my favorite record by her. And um, yeah, definitely Gil. Perfect answer. I love it. Uh, yeah. Number 10, the 10th and final of the top 10 countdown. What is your favorite John of all time? Um, there's been a lot of music, so I'm just going to have to go back to the Eagles, but Eagles Super Bowl win. Um, amazing night. My kids were, um, were with me. We went to Minneapolis. Um, you know, we had, we've had season tickets since 1960. So we were able to get two tickets and then it was three of us. So I bought a ticket in the last row of the stadium at the top of the stadium for a lot more money than I wanted to, but it was like the cheapest seat. And then my guy, my little guy sat with us. So we had, we had two seats. We put fit three of us into two seats, um, in Minneapolis. And, uh, that, that continues to be kind of my favorite, one of my favorite nights, if not my favorite night. So, um, um Eagles, Eagles are front of mine and my, my boys are downstairs and, um, and that that's uh, and they'll be out at Philly Music Fest. You'll see them working. It's a family affair. That's a beautiful answer. And a uh, man, what a what a magic moment that was. Like uh, I, I it, it gives me chills whenever I think about it. Like you know, kind of what you were talking about earlier when we were talking about you know how <laughs> the good feelings. Like all the way through that game, I was just like, at some point, we're going to lose this. Like I just, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, then it didn't happen. <laughs> but you know, we got it. I'll end with this. We got it. We got it that cynicism and skepticism we need to keep that to our sports teams we shouldn't lose that but um i do feel like that ethos you know bled into music um in this city for a long time like there was a lot of we got to keep we got to keep all our skepticism and cynicism in the sports box and when there's new fresh ideas and people making music that might be a lot different we we need to we need to embrace that first and not think it's going to crap out and be terrible. We got to, we got to be positive about everything outside of the sports. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Philly music fest, October 10th through 15th. Um, which shows did you say were sold out? So as of right now, um, Mount joy, both Mount joy shows the 10th and 11th are sold out. Um, Johnny Brenda's is sold out on the 13th. And I think the we're working on dying, which is a hip hop producer collective at rec Philly. Um, I think that's sold out on the 14th. Um, but there's, there's a couple tickets available for mannequin pussy and empath on the 15th and underground arts. And then, um, Shamir at the dolphin and Loka Connie at world cafe live. There's tickets available for those. They're going to be awesome. That's incredible. I can't wait. I can't wait. And, uh, you know, Greg, thank you not just for doing this show, but for every single thing that you do uh, in this community, not just with the Philly Music Fest, but um, just, you know, as as um, more than a participant, but as a, um, a, a champion of the area. If, if anybody wants to find any information out about the Philly Music Fest, what's the best way to track that down? Uh, probably at Philly Music Fest on Instagram and Facebook and uh, phillymusicfest.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to leave these uh, fine folks with? Just say, I appreciate you. I appreciate everything that you do. You're a pro. And if anyone's listening out there that wants to get into the music scene and do what you do, or even tap into what I'm doing, um, come out to Inside Hustle and, um, you know, find a, find a path for yourself. We, we need everyone kind of helping out. So um, that would be my message to listeners that there's a, there's a home for everyone here side hustle or full-time gig and um 
come on out and and let's say say hello. My thanks again to Greg for joining me on the show today. The Philly Music Fest takes place from October 10th through the 15th. Visit www.phillymusicfest.com for tickets and info. Tickets are still available for select shows but are going fast, so make sure you get on it. Follow the Philly Music Fest on Instagram at Philly Music Fest and on Twitter at PHL Music Fest. And space is still available for Inside Hustle, the free event for emerging musicians and non-musicians aspiring to work in the Philadelphia music industry. That's taking place at World Cafe Live on the afternoon of October 15th from 12 to 3 p.m. Links to all of these are in the show notes. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the Yo! That's My John podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And y'all, go on and get yourself a super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world just by rating and reviewing us. Don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com for articles, merchandise, and links to all of the previous episodes of this podcast. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to get all of the updates delivered straight into your inbox. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yo that's my John for updates and live streams. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at yo that's my John and search yo that's my John on YouTube to find the yo that's my John YouTube channel. Like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out and touch some John. Oh yeah, back in black. I hit the sack. I've been too long. I'm glad to be back, my friends. Thank you, as always, for joining me down here in the trenches. I appreciate y'all. Blue skies. Until next time, everybody. Hey, yo, displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure. Your taste in music doesn't have to be... Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Theme song by Phil Tyler Music featuring Nate 3.0. Special thanks to Fox Run Brands, DX Ferris, Andrew Scott, Natalie Runkle, and the incredibly brilliant and wickedly stunning Katie Daubney. If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo that's my john at gmail.com. Or you can leave an audio message for us and possibly hear yourself on a future episode by visiting anchor.fm slash ytmj slash message. Until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout to the world, yo, that's my John. <laughs>